The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading of selected verses from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to Christ. Christ. Amen. Thank you, Trevor. Let me pray as we get into this. Uh, Lord, this passage of Scripture is um, full of strong language aimed at those who find their righteousness in themselves and in their appearance. And Lord, there's not a person in this room who doesn't struggle with that. Uh, And so help us to connect, help us to see ourselves, help us to be willing to risk uh, vulnerability before you in owning uh, the application of these words to our own hearts. And uh, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the way that you confronted Uh, self-righteousness, continue to do that in us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, the opening question I want to ask is, what do you do, what do you do that's just for show? What do you do that's just for show, that you do in order to impress other people? I want us to think about this. I really want us to be willing to go there uh, this morning in our own hearts um, because this is a passage that is aimed at the Pharisees who, uh, it's just so easy to make certain characters in the Gospels into almost cartoonish characters, you know, like the Pharisees are just kind of the punching bag of, of all of the zingers that Jesus delivers about self-righteousness, and they just look like clowns. And the reality is the Pharisees were respected. Uh, They were educated, highly educated people. They were very disciplined. Um, and, uh, and, And when Jesus is confronting them, he's not confronting people who were the butt of the joke in that culture. He's confronting people who were leaders, Um, and who had influence and were looked to as models for how to follow after God. And so it's it's serious stuff that's happening here in this passage. And uh, 
And so I want us to do that. I want us to, to not assume that this is for other people, but that it's for ourselves. Let me give us a little working definition of self-righteousness. There's a lot more we could say, um, but just a couple of kind of thought pegs to, to, to kind of hang the sermon on here. Self-righteousness is basically an attempt to convince yourself and others that you are doing things right. Uh, that you're 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 living right. You're you're um, you know you're you're keeping all of the rules. You're kind of nailing it. You're kind of a big deal. And uh, self righteousness, the, the 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 darkness of self righteousness is that at its heart, what you're doing when you're practicing self righteousness is you're hiding God from people. Uh, because what you're doing is you're presenting um, all you need to do in order to live your best life now is just kind of do better than everybody else. And, and, and this finds its way into religion. It finds its way into the practice of our faith. And so, and so I ask you the question, what do you do that's just for show? What do you do to impress other people? Uh, we want to talk about unrighteousness. And so I'm going to go first, and I'm going to tell you about my self-righteousness. Okay, I'm going to tell you about, uh, I'm actually going to get really specific about a couple of things, um, and hopefully you won't think this is weird, but I'm just going to bare my soul a little bit here for you when it comes to my own self-righteousness, so that we can, one, so that you can know me better, you can know how it works in me, um, but two, so that maybe it will help you uh, kind of identify some things in your own life as well. Um, so I'm a self-righteous man, uh, I really am, and here's a little bit of how it works itself out in me. I am aware of certain proficiencies that I possess as a person, okay? In other words, I know there are some things I'm good at. A couple of them are this. Uh, I, and these are qualities that I can employ like a tool in a craftsman's hand. I can manipulate you with these things. So two of them. Uh, I've known for a long time that I'm decent with words. I'm decent with words. I can, I, can, I can work with them. I can compose content that can sound spiritually insightful and mature. And sometimes I'm aware that I'm not really saying much of anything. So I know that I can do that. Second thing I know about myself, I know that I have a gentle, disarming personality. I know that I'm not a lightning rod for controversy, all right? I'm not somebody that is always trying to stir up a fight. I know that I have a gentle, disarming personality, which people then often see as humility, and I'm also aware of that. So, I want to tell you a story about those two things coming together and a classic Russ Ramsey act of self-righteousness, okay? My ability to have a gentle, disarming personality and to craft things with words. So when I was in college, see, I'm going back far enough that you don't feel super weird about me. Um, <laughs> when I was in college, there was a prayer chapel on campus near my dorm, and uh, there were these journals that people could write their prayers in, and they were common journals that anybody could write them in, and most people would write things that were 
you know, struggles, and they, would, they were anonymous, and so people wouldn't write their names, but they would just kind of go in there, and they'd write in the journal. And then, you, you know, we'd read them. People would go in and read these little entries as they were writing their own. And one day, I was reading one of these journal entries from somebody, I didn't know who they were, who was explaining some kind of struggle they were having. And I decided to respond to that prayer. And so I wrote a response on the facing page to that, you know, dear sleepless in Seattle or whatever the nickname was, you know. And I, and I wrote this, this, this reply to these concerns and I wrote with empathy and I shared insight into their struggle. I offered some counsel. And at first, I think my motives were more or less pure as much as the 19-year-old version of me could have pure motives when it came to that sort of thing. But I came back a couple days later, and I discovered something. And what I discovered was that the anonymous praying person that I had responded to had responded to me with words of effusive praise. Thank you so much. That was so helpful. And then a couple other people responded that way, too. And a rush of adrenaline hit me that I had alighted on something that maybe was important for me to do, right? Apparently, I had done something heroic, and I didn't, even, I didn't even know it. And so I started writing some more, and I would, I would do this again, and in response to somebody else's prayer, and I would get these similar results. And it was, it was like I was this, this phantom source of insight and wisdom, leaving words in a journal in the prayer chapel, kind of like a covert dead drop of compassion and empathy and wisdom and insight. And it felt great. I mean, it felt great. And I began to believe that I was to these strangers somehow important and maybe even necessary. And I was learning that this disarming personality and this ability to work with words was leading people that I'd never even met to esteem me as humble and wise. You with me still? So I shared this secret with a friend of mine in my dorm who knew me. And this friend basically said to me, who do you think you are? And I was like, you don't understand. You have to kind of have to be there, man. It's, it's, uh, it's like, no, no, no. Who, what are you doing? What are you doing? And their pushback came from this place of knowing me, right? I was delighting in being perceived as heroic. I loved it that it was cloaked in spiritual language because it looked like I was, I was a, a spiritual guide to people. And I just found myself here. But the truth was, and my friend was calling me out on this, I was doing this for myself more than I was doing it for anybody else. All that really mattered to me was the response of effusive praise that I was getting from people. And my friend, he just asked me the pointed question. He said, hey, what if, what if your read on this stranger situation that you know nothing about is actually wrong? And what if the insight and the counsel you're giving them is not only off but harmful? How would you even know? In other words, he was asking me, is there anything wise or humble in playing God? 
And the truth was, I loved the praise of others. I loved the esteem. I fantasized about the day when my cover would be blown and people would discover, that was you? That was you the whole time? And there'd be a parade and they'd give me a nice seat in the dining commons and everybody would be talking about it and people would be talking for years about how I'd helped so many people in that prayer chapel. And whatever pure motives might have been there at the beginning, they just vanished as I began to revel in the praise of other people. Because on the surface, I was doing something that, that was, it seemed like a good work. But I quickly began to look at the role in the prayer chapel for my spiritual validation. And I began to look at the reactions of others for my spiritual satisfaction. If you are impressed with me, I'm satisfied. And when that would happen, it felt great. So what was missing from the equation. What was missing was God. What was missing was God. See, the one that I had professed to be writing about and in an implied way on behalf of God himself was not really necessary for any of what I was getting out of what I was doing because this was just for me. He didn't factor into it at all. So that's me. That's a very concrete way that I have practiced, and I've done that in other versions over my life as a pastor in various ways. But what about you? How does it work for you? What are the things that you do to gain the praise and the admiration of other people to the degree that God doesn't even matter anymore in this? It's all just about that. We all have things that we do to gain the respect of other people, to entice people to think more highly of us than we deserve. Some of us, we turn to materialism, right? We outfit ourselves, we outfit our lives, our kids, our homes with brands and fads that communicate that we're just a little bit ahead of the curve. We turn to accomplishments, positions, degrees, titles, letters after our name, alma maters, even the successes of others for whom we've taken responsibility, like our children, our spouses, our parents. Some of us turn to power, right? We rise to positions that command respect. I don't need you to respect me. I just need you to give it to me. I need you to give me respect because of the position that I'm in. Or you're not engendering anything from people. You're just demanding it. But perhaps... Spirituality is the place where, where it's maybe most common. Is we try to look better than we are. Our generation did not invent this, but we're good at it. We've learned, and we carry the torch as well as any. And we leverage the better aspects of our personality in order to pass ourselves off as the complete package so that people will look at our lives and say, man, I don't even hold a candle to what that person has going on. And what we're talking about is self-righteousness, which is what Jesus is confronting with the Pharisees. Self-righteousness, living in this way. I'll tell you the story of myself, that prayer journal, and that prayer chapel. I ask you to think about your own self-righteousness because it could be easy to look at this passage as something that's just aimed at people who are not like us, but it's not. It's aimed at anyone who leverages 
their accomplishments, their positions, their abilities, their resources, or their traits to rank ourselves as higher than those around us. And who among us hasn't done that? This behavior of trying to rank ourselves as higher than those around us, we see from this passage, infuriates Jesus. He's angry about this. Angry. You know Jesus gets angry, right? You see this in scripture. He's not just this placid, calm, I like everything and everything's cool and I hope you're finding fulfillment in life kind of guy. He has anger, he has wrath. And he's angry here. He's angry about this self-righteousness and it's vital for us to understand why. And the reason why is because it hides God from people. It denies who God is and conceals him. And in this case, it's the people who are supposed to be revealing God who are actually working very diligently and hard to hide God to get people to esteem them rather than him. And so Jesus here, when this passage happens, that's long preamble, I know, but, but Jesus here, he's in the temple when this happens. When he gives the woes to the Pharisees, he's in the temple in Jerusalem. So he's in the middle of it, right? It's a Tuesday when this happens. I'll say more about that in a minute. But he's been there all day. He's been telling parables. He's been teaching about the greatest commandment. He's been teaching about the resurrection of the dead. He's been talking about rendering unto Caesar and paying taxes. And he ends this Tuesday, which he spent all day in the temple teaching. And he ends it with this really brutal repudiation of the Pharisees and the scribes. Seven of them. We only read part of it. You can read the rest of the chapter. And he does this. And, and, he, and, and, he's, and, and those Pharisees and scribes are in the audience. You could cut the tension with a knife. They're there, right? And so they're in the audience. Seven woes or repudiations. And then a public lament for Jerusalem for having everything they needed to know and to find and to walk with God. And they just squandered it and wasted it. I long to gather you, but you wouldn't have me. So you can read the rest of the chapter to get the full cannon blast, but in our verses, Jesus is telling those who are listening, look, don't aspire to be like the religious leaders here. Don't aspire to be like the scribes and the Pharisees because they don't practice what they preach. They sit on Moses' seat, which is another way of saying they sit in the place of teaching the people the law of God. So that's what they're doing. They're teaching the law of God. There's not a problem with the law of God, but there's a problem with the teachers of the law of God. So they sit in this place where they're teaching the law of God. And sometimes even what they teach is true, but the teachers are not honest. We live in a time right now where People with public platforms as Christians um, write books, you know, lead large churches, uh, go on speaking circuits. This is a strange time to be, in a, to be a Christian in the world right now when you have these, these kind of branded platforms of people. Um, and, and people coming out in droves for it. It's, it's just it's strange. Um, but sometimes something will happen where somebody will, uh, you know, 
reject orthodoxy or they'll have some kind of moral collapse or some kind of something will happen that will remove them. They'll be a bully uh, in the way that they manage people and it'll come out and, and they'll get replaced. And one of the questions you have to ask is, okay, do you discount their work now? Because they're not any longer in... And it's a, it's a tough question to wrestle through, isn't it? What do you do with somebody who's written books that inspired you and helped you know Christ better and then they personally collapsed in on themselves morally? And I think what Jesus is saying here is he's saying all truth is God's truth and just because a messenger becomes corrupt it doesn't disqualify or dis, it doesn't, it doesn't um, drain the content of truth from being true. And so he's saying, look, you have these people who are duplicitous and they're dishonest in the way that they live. They teach the law of Moses. And a lot of what they're teaching is true. They're just not honest people. And so he says, listen to the teaching of the law, but don't model your lives after these people. Why? The answer is because they are a million miles away from the great commandment to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love their neighbors themselves. That's why. They instead love the praise of man and they posture themselves to receive as much of it as possible. And so he gets specific. He says they dress in exaggerated garb, which had to have been awkward for them sitting there in their exaggerated garb, right? Because Jesus is basically pointing out the absurdity of the clothes that they're wearing in the moment, which had to have been uncomfortable for everybody. Um, but he, you know, he says they exaggerate their religious garb. They seek seats of honor. They participate in these elaborate greetings in the marketplace, which make everybody around them kind of look at them and recognize that, oh, this person is, is a big deal. They're a big deal. We should, we should pay attention to them. They claim titles for themselves that imply they're indispensable to society and they love it and they wouldn't have it any other way. But the end game for them is not to show others how to be more like God. The end game is to con people into aspiring to be more like them while personally believing no one could actually do that. No one can rise to the level of where I am. See, it's not the hypocrisy so much that offends Jesus here. Because, listen, everybody in this room is a hypocrite, right? Everybody in this room does, think, does one thing and says another, right? We do this. It's, it's the way it is. Somebody, you know, somebody said the old joke is church is full of hypocrites. The answer is, no, there's room for a few more. Come on, come on in. You know, it's, look, we all, we're all this way. But what Jesus is so up in arms about is not so much hypocritical acts as much as it is the Pharisees' fierce commitment to a hypocritical system which puts burdens on people that they lead that nobody can actually bear. They're suffocating the people that they lead and saying, this is what God wants from you. They're supposed to be leading people to God and instead what they're doing is they're hiding God from them. So through their commitment to self-righteous superiority, they're concealing 
the mercy and the kindness of God, and they're stripping the people of any hope that they could be loved by God. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the Pharisees are saying, actually, no, it's impossibly hard. And Jesus is angry about that because self-righteousness is an affront to the truth of the mercy and the grace of God. It's saying, do not rely on his righteousness, rely on your own, and don't mess it up. And if you are going to mess it up, don't, don't let anybody see it. And that's the damnable part of trusting in our good works, is that it's a burden nobody can bear. Nobody. Nobody can carry this. So if we as Christians in this room, if you're a Christian in this room, if we're part of the priesthood of all believers then we have to understand that Jesus is speaking to us here. And we have to examine, am I creating and promoting a hypocritical system that, in effect, hides Jesus from people rather than reveals Jesus to people? It's heavy and it's challenging stuff, isn't it? But listen, it, we, we dare not look away too quickly because the Pharisees didn't start out this way. They didn't start out trying to usurp the role of God any more than I did in that prayer chapel. But here's the thing about self-righteousness. We refine it. We refine it over time. We find those things that gain the admiration of respect in people and we leverage those things. And that's what self-righteousness looks like for all of us. Is we find the things that we're good at that people respond positively to and we start saying, okay, that's the thing I want you to know about me. That's the thing I want you to admire about me. And this other stuff, I don't want you to see that. I'm going to control the narrative. So do you see it here? That's what Jesus is pushing on. Self-righteousness, you're actually concealing God from people when in fact what you're called to do is be revealing God to people. So you're hiding him. So I want to land this passage. We've talked about the text itself. I want to land by, by looking at something that I mentioned earlier, and that was that this took place on a Tuesday, because there's something significant there for us to understand, actually something beautiful for us to understand. And I want to talk about this because it's important for us to understand the anger of Jesus here, because uh, he's not just flying off the handle. He's not just irritated, a guy with a short temper. He's in the process of doing something that is that this anger is a small part of a larger confrontation that's happening. So how do we know this happened on a Tuesday? We know because we know what week this happened. And we know the sequence of the days of that week. This happened during Holy Week. This confrontation with the Pharisees in the temple, telling the people, do not model yourself after these Pharisees and scribes who are there in the temple as well. That's happening during Holy Week. Jesus said in John 10, verses 17 and 18, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I alone have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. That's either true or it's not. And when we look at this passage, we see that Jesus is actually in the process of doing that. He's in the process of intentionally laying down his life. He's poking the bear. That's what he's doing. In today's text, Jesus is in the process of making good on that claim. In just two days, he's going to be arrested. 
and he will be tried, and he will be sentenced to be crucified, and he will die, and he will rise again on the third day. So that's what's going to happen just in two days. But what's happened in this week already? Because don't forget, he's in the temple, that Jerusalem temple, and he's criticizing the leaders of it in their presence. So what we know about this is we know that on that Saturday before this Tuesday, Jesus came out of hiding, went to Lazarus' house where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha had a party to celebrate his return. Lazarus, the one who was dead and now lives, and Jesus together, word spreads. Sunday morning, what happens? He sends his disciples, go get this colt. He rides into Jerusalem. People are laying down coats and palms, making a path for him to ride into, and they're saying, Hosanna is the one, Hosanna, hail to the, the son of David. You know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're making way, the path, for the king of Israel and the religious leaders are coming out and they're saying, will you please make them stop saying this, Jesus, because the Romans are gonna hear and they're gonna shut this whole thing down. And Jesus says, if they don't praise me, even the rocks and the trees will. That's Palm Sunday, right? He goes into the temple, that, that triumphal entry, he rides into Jerusalem because he's going to the temple. He goes into the temple, he leaves Monday, He goes back into the temple. What does he do? He overturns the money changers' tables. If that were you or I, let me tell you how that would go down, okay? We'd go in, we'd overturn the money changers' tables, and then we would leave. You you think about what I just did. I'm gonna give you a moment. No, what Jesus did is he plants his feet. He overturns the money changers' tables, and then he stays all day. And what's he do? He heals the lame and the blind, That's Monday. This is the next day. He goes back to the temple again. So he's ridden in like a king. He's overturned the money changers' tables. He's claimed that it's his. This is the day that the religious leaders come to him at the beginning and they say, give an account of yourself. By what authority are you presuming to do all this? And that's when Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you answer one of mine. John's baptism, was that from God or from man? And they don't answer that question theologically. They realize it's more of a political question than it is a theological one, and there's no way for them to win. If they say it's from God, then the people will say, well, then why didn't you listen to him? And if you say it's from man, well, John the Baptist was a folk hero who was regarded as a martyr who died for a great cause, and so it would be unpopular there. And so they choose instead a third option. I don't know. And Jesus says, then I'm not going to answer your question. And then he stays, and he teaches, and he teaches parables, and he talks about paying taxes to Caesar, and he talks about the resurrection of the dead, and he ends that day with these woes to the Pharisees. That's what's happening here. Does that help? Does that help you see the height of the confrontation and the tension that's happening here? See, Jesus is upending a system right now. He's upending a system where there will never again be any hint of needing to save ourselves through our rank and our good work, ever. He's putting an end to that. He's saying that the system of the Pharisees contradicts the gospel, and he's showing what the gospel is by laying down his life. In truth, the greatest becomes the servant. The proud are humbled. The humbled are exalted. And attempting to save ourselves is a road to hell both in the life to come and also in this life now. It's miserable. It will only fail us. And so Jesus, in his anger, he's not lost in his anger. 
He's not just flying off the handle. He is rattling the cage of the self-righteous. The cage that the self-righteous have locked themselves in. Where they must be better than everybody else. And he's saying no. And he's saying it while he's laying down his life for them. Jesus loved perfectly all the time. He didn't have friends and enemies. He loved perfectly all the time, right? And so when he responds to people, one of his methods was he would get to the heart of a person through their wound, right? You see this. You see this with the woman at the well. He starts talking to her about her broken relationships. With the rich young ruler, he starts telling him, Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It's the one thing he can't, he just can't do, right? The woman caught in adultery. He defends her, he steps between her and the accusers. I contend that when Jesus is getting in the grill of the Pharisees and he is publicly dressing them down and he's saying, and he's saying woe to you, I contend that he's doing the same thing with them that he's doing with the rich young ruler and the woman at the well and that is that he is pushing on their idol to try to get it to break. That's what he's doing. And so that's what's happening here in this place is he's getting to the heart through the wound and for the self-righteous, it's the living hell of constantly trying to measure up. And he's saying it's a fool's errand and everybody knows it. And his words of woe then are an effort to try to pry from their grip this fierce commitment to their own merit because he's in the process of burning it to the ground. Why? Because he's making a truer and a better way. In just two days, he's going to be arrested. And he will not defend himself. He will take it. Though he'd committed no crime, he will lay down his life for those whose sin is licentiousness and for those whose sin is self-righteousness. And he will take up that life again, just like he said. And he will give us life not in our record of righteousness, but in his. Unto what end? That our story would be that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength and that God himself is the object of our worship and our love and our affection and that we are abandoning the idea of playing God and instead, we are turning to God for his mercy and his grace. And so hear these woes. Hear these woes as a call to abandon hope in saving yourself. Just abandon hope in saving yourself. Because the greatest among you shall be the servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And instead, find your security in what Jesus was in the process of doing when he spoke these words, laying down his life so that we might live in him. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for the way that you confront the self-righteous. Lord, and I think one of the chief sins of the self-righteousness is an unwilling to admit that we are just that. And so, Lord, use this 
passage to help us see ourselves more clearly. Not just to see our self-righteousness, but to see the way that you have um, given us a better way and that you have claimed victory over the sin of trying to earn our salvation on our own. Lord, uh, thank you that it's just not that way. Thank you that we don't have to impress you, uh, that our job is not to uh, make you take notice of us because of how good we've been, uh, but that our righteousness is found in Christ alone. It's a great kindness that you give to us, even when we turn away from it so many times. Help us to rest in that, find our comfort in that, and to love you better because of it. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.